Okay, so this morning, we're going to call this message, No Shortcuts. And uh, today is March 24th, 2013. And uh, in your bulletin, you're going to see a place where I have some starters for notes. I'd like to tell you that what we taught on Wednesday, Radical Amputation, uh, is really a companion message to what we're going over this morning. No shortcuts. When we talk about... Palm Sunday. We usually think of the triumphal entry. Somebody is going to um, undoubtedly quote Zechariah 9 this morning about the king coming to us gentle and riding on a donkey, the foal of a, a donkey. In some churches they'll hand out palm branches. And usually the messages center around something. They usually center around the idea that Jesus was presented as king to the nation of Israel and the nation of Israel did not receive him as king. That's usually along the lines that we hear uh, Palm Sunday after Palm Sunday after Palm Sunday. As I began to lead up to this week, and I was praying about what we might share, it occurred to me that that was not the way that Jesus presented himself to the world. Not at all. Jesus did not show up from the heavens on a blazing white horse or on a donkey or with people waving palm branches. Jesus did not announce himself to the nation in mass. That is not where the gospel starts, is it? See, if I were going to run for office in this country, what a scary thought that is. You have to have so much money, or somebody has to give you so much money, that you get your face before every person in the country, right? At least in swing states. There are some states that vote a certain direction, no matter, you could run just a tombstone out there and it wouldn't matter. But in swing states, you want every person to see it. Am I wrong? Okay, y'all gonna have to talk to me this morning. Y'all already sleeping? Am I wrong? No. Wouldn't you think that if we were gonna present salvation to the world, that God's plan would have involved taking Jesus, plastering him on billboards, painting a picture across the sky, having an angelic army of light show up so that no one would miss him. And yet that is not at all what happened. Jesus had a very, very different plan. Does that surprise us? Jesus did everything differently. But when we think about Jesus, John 1.18 says He makes the Father known. When you want to know what the Lord is like, all we have to do is look at the ministry of Jesus. Well, think about what this will tell us. What's the first word written in your bulletin? Selection. Come on, are y'all, does everybody have a bulletin? Y'all are quiet this morning, you're starting to scare me. It's okay to speak out loud in church. You can even show excitement. Those of you that are challenged with no pigment in your skin and you came up in churches where no one spoke outside or out loud, we apologize for that. We want you to know in here it is okay. We believe we're a community. We believe that it's supposed to be interactive. There's no sage on a stage in here. What we have is a flock and a shepherd. Say amen. Say you can speak. Lightning didn't strike. Not even you white people. So what does it say in the bulletin under the note section first? What is that word? Selection. selection. This is where God's plan starts. He started by selecting Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. And he always selects someone who leaves what they're in and heads towards what he's telling them about. 
Then he selected Jacob. And out of Jacob he had 12 tribes. When he formed the nation of Israel, Israel is the chosen or selected nation. The Newer Testament picks up with the ministry of Jesus doing something. And it involves selection. You can turn with me to Luke 6. We'll be in the 13th verse. Say there when you're there. In Luke 6, 13, we find these words. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he designated to be apostles. Where did Jesus' ministry really get launched? Was it with a worldwide media campaign? Did he start with the heads of nations? Did he attack the problem the same way, I don't know, Donald Trump might attack the problem? Jesus was the furthest thing on the planet from egotistical. When he wanted the world to know about him, he didn't invest in money. He didn't invest in giant kingdoms or buildings. I mean, today, to be important in Christianity, we have to have the biggest building and the highest steeple. But Jesus was not that way. The movement that he started invested in one thing first. He selected people. He selected not 100 people, not 200 people, not 10,000. He selected 12. This way he could have real, meaningful relationships that would forever change their lives. Isn't it worth asking yourself, when did Jesus select you? When did you feel His presence in your life for the first time that separated you from everyone else and made you know that the God of the universe was dealing with you? See, the world would like to receive Him like Palm Sunday. They would like Him to be the conquering King coming in. And all of us that have read the book of Revelation have read that description and it is coming. But that is not how His plan starts. It starts with the humble acknowledgement that God has selected you for something more important than your own life. He didn't stop with just selecting them. Look at Mark 3 in the 14th verse. Say there when you're there. I'm waiting for the rest of you. Come on now, help a pastor out. Let's go. To be selected by God. Anybody in here ever selected on an athletic team you have to try out for? Anybody in here ever selected in a musical arena for something that you had to audition for? To be selected meant that somebody saw value in you. The way that Ephesians 2 teaches this is that you are the workmanship of God created in Christ Jesus to do good works. He saw in you the creature that His hands made, the potential to further His kingdom, if He could carve out of your life your sinful nature and pour His nature into you. He selected you for a purpose. When I was in the 11th grade, I was selected for physics literary writing. Right? I know that surprises all of you. The woman's name that approached me was Annette Grant. I have never seen someone more offended, uh, I mean, at least not in my early life, than when I laughed and I said, wait, does this require more work? And she said, most definitely. Will it require a weekend? She said, more than one. I unashamedly said, what's in it for me? 
She said, it's a high honor to be selected for physics literary rally. I laughed and walked off. <coughs> she was so upset because to her, it was an honor. It's what her life was about. And out of all the students she could have chosen, she chose me. Now, I was an unregenerate, ungrateful person. deserved everything that I got from her. But what is it when the God of the universe, out of the six and a half billion people on the planet, taps you on the shoulder? How could we escape if we ignored a salvation like that? Think about this. We're, we're not talking about selecting the city council. We're not talking about selecting even to a presidential cabinet, although most would find that an honor in most administrations. We are talking about being selected by the living God. Mark 3.14 says it this way. He appointed 12, designating them apostles, that they might be with Him, and that He might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. He didn't just select them, friends. He selected them to associate with Him. One writer said it this way. He gave them power of attorney to use his name. Oh my goodness. Tomorrow when you're in workplace, when you're standing there, and we have our little bracelets that say things like, what would Jesus do? The question is not what would Jesus do. He already did it. He already did it and he gave you the power to use his name, his authority, his character, his reputation. Now you're standing in the workplace. The question is not what would Jesus do. The question is very much what will you who bear his name do? His work is finished except what he has left to be completed through you. He has associated with those he selected. He's associated by name and he's associated in that we spend our time with him. Now, there are many churches in this world. They say, in fact, that a couple billion people on the planet are Christians. They say that. Now, they are statisticians. And one of them that most Christians know, Barna, he says that 83% of this nation claim to be Christians. But when you ask about the criteria of what it means to be an actual, biblically validated Christian, our number drops to below 17%. In fact, it was updated just a couple years ago to be below 15%. I want you to think upon this for a minute, friends. Selected, associating with Jesus. What does that really mean? He chose people that would spend time with Him for a reason. Are you, uh, you're in Mark 3.14. Go with me to Matthew 28.20. Now, many of you can quote this, but it's worth looking at these words a little more carefully. If I were God, I might have made a 3D IMAX movie. That seems to be what gets this generation's attention, love, and devotion. In fact, this generation will camp outside at movie theaters. They will sleep on the pavement just to watch a little British boy pretend to be a witch. They'll do it. 
Jesus never tried to reach the masses. He tried to reach 12 in such a way that they could reach the masses. How important would it then be to be selected by Him? How important would your every action be? How important would what you say and did be if you were one of 12 that would represent Him forever? In Matthew 28, looking at the 20th verse, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. How can you know everything He commanded you if you have not spent time with it? In 20 years now that I have been sincerely, avidly following Jesus, the Bible is the book that everyone believes they know what it contains, but are shocked when you tell them what is actually in it. It doesn't matter how long people have been in church. I find entire books of the Bible that are so dusty that they have no idea what they're even really about. And you find that you can survey a pastor's sermons for 15 years and never find something out of Song of Songs in it. And you find that there's only two verses in the book of Habakkuk that anybody has ever preached on. Never mind the fact that Zephaniah has never been touched. We're all so sure that we know what the Bible is about, but we cannot name 25 things that are in it. If you have to pass a test this second to say, name me five rivers in the Bible, name me three mountains, can you outline one song? Friends, if you were selected by the President of the United States as one of 12 Americans who would go abroad and represent America all over the world, would you be able to tell us what year the Gettysburg Address happened? Would you be able to tell us Oh, every stanza of the Star-Spangled Star Banner? Of course you would. But we think to be a Christian simply is to acknowledge that that's God's Word, even though we don't know what it says. When Jesus wanted to impact the entire world, think of the audacity of the level of trust. I mean, the sheer shocking nature that He would take 12 people and He would associate with them in order to invest all that He has in them. And one of them turns out to be a devil. Every time I get seriously upset about discipleship, I remember Judas. We've all been Judas at some time, haven't we? We kiss Jesus. We love you, Lord. We love everything about you. You're awesome. Then we went out and acted like a devil. This is Palm Sunday. It's triumphal entry. And yet, Jesus did not enter the world as a conquering king. He was so humble and lowly in heart and spirit that what he did was he took 12 men and he invested everything he had in them. Is it worth asking who are you investing in? How can we know what it is that he teaches if we are not actually with him? Anybody in here been married more than 10 years? Get your hand up. More than 20. More than 30. More than 40. Look at y'all. Now I'm going to submit to you that the volants and the halls have a kind of communication that you that have been married less than 20 years are not going to understand. Sitting across from each other at a breakfast table, I can assure you that a raised eyebrow can speak an entire volume about what they do. <laughs> do you know why? Because they've been with each other. 
they've associated with each other. Does the living God have to hit you with a sledgehammer to get your attention? Or can he simply raise his eyebrow and it brings you to a place of broken repentance? See, we don't want to be hard-hearted. We want to be those that are associated with Jesus. The more we are with Jesus, something begins to happen. This would be consecration. You can turn with me to Matthew 11, 29. In Matthew 11, starting in verse 29, it says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The audience that he spoke this to understood that a yoke, although it was something that was draped across two animals to make them walk and step with each other, referred to the way that a rabbi taught, the way that a rabbi interpreted the scripture, the way that a rabbi walked it out and carried it, and listened to how Jesus spoke about it. He said in the 29th verse, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Jesus didn't just select 12 at random. He didn't just associate with anybody who would associate with Him. He picked 12 special people that would associate with Him and hear these words. Take His yoke upon them. This means that His manner of life, He expected them to learn from Him and to perform. Not simply to learn and say, I know it. Not to be able to pass an academic test. But he expected them to literally do what he had been doing. We call this consecration, friends. It's when you are so set apart for God that you are actually obedient to him. Oh, do you feel the, the narrow way getting narrower as we speak? Many are called, but few are. Wonder what that means. Do you think maybe it means... Out of everybody that's called, not very many are willing to truly associate. Not very many are willing to truly consecrate. The living God had a plan. It was His investment in people. He starts with 12. Those 12 have extended this even to you. What do we do when we see somebody that needs to be discipled? Well, it takes too much time for us to associate with Oh, we certainly couldn't ask Americans to consecrate you be obedient to me. Oh, no American will stand for that. I know what we'll do. We'll simply set up a university and ship them off to school. When they come back, they'll have a degree and we will call that a disciple. Friends, all shortcuts to Jesus' method have failed. Every one of them has. Can you tell me honestly that a man's academic accolades have qualified him to do what Jesus does? Can anybody in here say that? Of course it's possible that it was one of many tools to get someone there. But let us think about God's method and then ask ourselves a question. Is, is it really our right to modify it? Is it really our right to shorten it? To simply say, let's let an institution of higher learning prepare the people that the church was supposed to prepare. Oh, it's more efficient. We can run people through like cattle. We can put an offering box at both ends of the building and have them sprint through and see who can hit the offering box. But you know what you can't do? You can't require consecration of people like that. 
They don't know you. You don't know them. You've not really associated with each other. And so you're completely unaccountable. Are you beginning to see why the American church has gotten to the position that it's in? We would love for a leader to appear on a white horse for us in the first century and have the nation embrace it. That's not what he did. He went to 12. And he said, if you will recognize God's selection in your life, if you will associate with me even to the point of death, and you will be obedient, learning what I tell you, doing what I tell you, you can change the world. Let me ask you, did that have an impact on the world? How did we get to the two billion figure? Whether they're real Christians or not is beside the point. How do we get from a little town in Bethlehem or Nazareth or Capernaum or even the, the metropolitan city of Jerusalem all the way to Houston, Texas? We got it because those who were selected, associated, they consecrated, and they did more than that. They went on from there. Whatever Jesus told them, whatever Jesus said to them, turn with me to Luke 16. You'll see it here. They did. If everything that you had ever experienced with God could be summed up on one page, how full would your page be? Now let's strip away from that what you heard preachers say. Let's strip away from that what you saw on Christian t-shirts or bumper stickers. And let's boil it down to just what the Lord has spoken to you in your lifetime. How full would that page be? See, when we don't take time to associate with Him, we don't have anything to consecrate to. We end up ascending to church doctrines. We end up fighting battles over whose church is better than someone else's church instead of being personally obedient to the Lord. Is there anybody out here who wants to be personally obedient to the Lord? Anybody who feels a higher calling than simply warming their salvation seat? See, I believe that God selected you. That He brought you in here to associate not only with the leaders of the church, but with each other and thus the community of God. And in doing that, that your life would be challenged. And as your life was challenged, you would have an opportunity to show yourself consecrated, which is the next great challenge. Let me ask you, when is the last time you were confronted with something in your life that must change in order to follow Jesus? And if it didn't change, you knew you could not follow Jesus. If that is not happening, then how can we call ourselves consecrated? See, Jesus loved the man to look at him and say, One thing you lack, friend. First go sell everything you have, and then you can follow me. He didn't shortcut it. He didn't say, Because you have nine of ten things right, you can follow me. He didn't say, Because you called me good teacher. follow me. Jesus loved him enough to require of them obedience. Why? Because Jesus did not have a multimedia campaign to build the world's largest megachurch. He didn't. Jesus was very much a mini church pastor. He took 12 and said, I will so impact these 12's lives that they'll go change the world by doing exactly what I've done for them. Saints, this was his plan. It was not the white horse. Here in Luke 16, 13, we see no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one 
and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Could there ever be a better message for our time? We hear all of the time, I know it's right to tithe, but. We hear it all the time. I don't even talk with people about these things unless they bring it up. But I still hear it every day somewhere. Do you think we have a little problem with devotion to our Lord over devotion to our dollars? Are you interested in the very minimum that you can give to God? The minimum you can get by with? Do you pay God a tax? Are you so devoted to Him in carrying out His work? You're actually looking for places to sacrifice so that you might help get His work done. See, because these men, they didn't write Jesus a check for 10%. They put everything that they had at His disposal. They viewed it as His to start with. And they carried this out not just with Jesus. You say, well, He was God. They did it with the apostles. Have you ever read the first 10 chapters of Acts? They sold their property and laid it at their feet. How far has Christianity fallen? We want our white horse. We want our stallion. We want our national political figure. And this is not how the gospel comes to people's lives. He chose you. He selected you. He wants to associate with you in daily fellowship. Not Sundays and Wednesdays. You know Keith Green's own family tried to convince him to change that song? It's called The Sleep and the Light. He said, if you will only come to me on Sundays and Wednesday nights, don't bother coming at all. And they begged him to change it. One of the reasons I like him so much, even though his music is dated to me and his hair is laughable and all of those things, is the man had met Jesus and he would not compromise the standard of God. So he told his wife, no. He told his best friend no. He told the music producer no. And so his music remains anointed to this day. Yes, you can say amen to that. When we're looking at no servant can serve two masters, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one. How devoted to Jesus are you? Knowing that he selected you. Knowing that he wants to associate with you. Knowing that he is calling you into devotion or consecration. How is your life lining up with that? Are you hurting for the gospel? Do you have legitimate burdens in your life to see God's work done? Or has the kingdom simply become a blessing station for you? Every life, uh, your best life now, every day of Friday. I mean, just is there any more sloppy agape to be handed out? Any more greasy grace you can spread on me? Because the mark of a disciple was somebody who was devoted to the Lord. That devoted leaves room for something. As you are devoted to the Lord, it takes you right to John 20, 22. In John 20, 22, Jesus breathed upon his disciples. Let me say this. When we're talking about impartation, it does not happen without devotion. If you are not consecrated to the Lord, how can He impart anything to you? How many times have you had something good to share with the people you wanted to share it with were the only ones that didn't show up? You may not experience that every week. I do. Every week, on my face in prayer, before the other elders in the church, yearning for what would feed the sheep. What is it that they most need to hear? 
And you know the general rule of thumb? Whoever most needs to hear it is not in the building that week, which is why they most need to hear it. If we are going to have the heavens impart something into our lives, you know what the most basic requirement is? That we be there. Because if you're not there, he can't breathe on you. Come on, friends, they were so close to Jesus that when he breathed, it hit their skin. How close to Jesus are you? Does it take a violent rushing wind from the heavens? Or are you walking step in step with him so that when he whispers, you hear it? The plan that God had to bring salvation to the whole world involves selecting men, associating with them, requiring of them devotion so that he could impart something to them. What can you honestly say he has imparted to your life? Now, let's strip away that you've got a good job. Let's strip away that you've been generally blessed all of your life. Let's get a little deeper than that. What has he specifically changed in your life? In what direction were you heading? And his spirit required of you. You must repent or I will not continue to bless you. You know what I find with men that grow up in Christian houses? Women that grow up in Christian houses? They reach this age where they think that the blessings in their lives and all the things that have happened, they're just something to be taken for granted. Their parents have forced them to associate with Jesus. Their parents have caused them to be consecrated. They didn't have a choice. And amen parents for that. But as they reach autonomy, very little is being imparted to them. And the reason is they have to switch from their parents selecting them to them being selected by God. They have to switch from associating with their parents who are associated with Jesus to associating with Jesus. They have to switch from consecration to their parents to consecration to the Spirit of God. They have to switch from a relationship where their parents impart to them and a relationship where God is imparting to them. How many of you are in your early 20s and you're stumbling beyond belief and doing your best to hide it from your parents because they would be ashamed if they knew what you were doing? Oh, saints, our relationship with the living God is the most cherished thing that we have. It's all we have at the end of the day. You're going to leave some kind of legacy. You are. The legacy that you will leave will either be broken, destroyed lives that squandered and wasted time, or it will be that you built the kingdom of God. When the fire tests your work, what will be there? It will only be what He imparted. I'd like to tell you that it sounds very spiritual to say Jesus breathed on them and they received the Spirit. Doesn't it? Doesn't it? Yes. How many of you would be comfortable with breathing on your neighbor and saying receive the Spirit? I'm going to ask you not to do it. I find it funny that in our literalist interpretive models, which, by the way, I take the word as literally as I take your speech, but when I hear Jesus say He's the way, the truth, and the life, I don't look for a doorknob in the center of His chest. I understand it's a metaphor. I, I would like to ask you, how many of us that are literalists are comfortable breathing on each other? Or spitting on each other? Have you ever read the book of Mark? Jesus spits in almost every chapter. If you don't know that, friends, maybe you should read the book of Mark. <coughs> 
I love when people come and they say, Pastor, I think I have a word for you. And they spit out a scripture, right? I love to give them my own scriptures, right? Just to see if they'll actually look it up. Yeah, I'm not going to give you that scripture now. It's amazing how many people do not know what is in the Word. Do you hunger for the Word? Yeah. Do you want to know? How many of you could honestly, don't raise your hands. Can you honestly say you have daily interaction with the Word that approaches, that even comes close. Let's just say it's a tithe of your TV time. See, I'm not going to look out there and make eye contact because I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Oh, 23rd channel, baptize us into thy name. Look at Luke 9 with me. In Luke 9, the 57th verse, listen to how this is said. As they were walking along the road, a man said to them, I will follow you wherever you go. What were they doing? They're walking along the road. Jesus replied, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Boy, if Jesus was here preaching, you might not be, huh? Where's his compassion? Where's the love? Maybe we need to redefine what compassion and love are. Maybe compassion and love are when you love someone enough to tell them what is killing them. Maybe it's not compassionate, it's not loving at all to pat somebody on the back while there are things in their life that are competing with their devotion to Christ. Oh, parents, are you hearing me? It is not loving to your children to allow something in their life that is killing them. If you have the power in your life to stop it, and stopping it might include shunning their behavior and thus shunning them. Oh, I know. Are we more holy than God? No. Are any of you more loving than God? Any of you more righteous than God? Because God absolutely does that. If you don't believe it, then why is David saying, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me? Why is he begging that God would make in him a new heart? The living God disciplines. And those who love the Lord are disciplined by Him. The most basic reading of this text was not about discipline. It's the 57th verse and then 10.1 as well. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out two by two. In the 57th verse, they're walking with Jesus. In the 10th chapter and 1st verse, they're walking with each other. The best way to ever have something imparted to you is not in a classroom. The best way to have something imparted to you is not a church service. The best way to have something imparted to you is to have daily interaction with Jesus. Daily interaction with those who are having interaction with Jesus. Monday night I was teaching a Bible study and I had one of those amazing teacher moments. Because two men who have been associated with Jesus and who associate with us, they've been selected by God. They're devoted to the teaching and devoted to the Lord. They imparted something into my life. It was so good that I will steal it and 
I will preach it next Sunday. <laughs> we are supposed to be sharing with each other what we've received from the heavens. Amen. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says to us, about us, that the secret things belong to God, but what is revealed to us and our children's children. So what have you gotten from God that you are handing to your children? What have you gotten from God that is so amazing to you that you've shared it with your neighbors? Oh, come on, saints. If you get a new iPad 4, you tell your friends about it. If you get a brand new car, you can't wait to drive it around the block and show everybody. What did you get from the heavens? These men, what they received from Jesus, they were ready to share with everyone. God had imparted to their lives. And He had imparted to their lives because they walked with Him. Jesus did not just teach from an ivory tower. He never stood behind a lectern and on a stage. Did you know that the Jewish model of teaching in the first century was to stand in the lowest place in the building? Because whoever was speaking should be the most humble in the building. Look at how opposite that is today. We would have to dig a hole in here. He put people on the mountainside. I stood on those mountainsides in Israel. He put them on the mountainside and stood himself at the water. They say, oh, it's a natural amphitheater, and it is. But that's not why he did it. Jesus did not come in as an elevated, pompous, political figure. There are religious organizations that do that today. They've got special cars for their paunchy old man to ride around in. They've got special garments. They do whatever they can to lift him as high as they can. They call him the vicar of Christ on earth. How ridiculous. Christ himself never acted like that. Ever. Instead, he took humble, ordinary men. He said, if you will associate with me, if you will obey, consecrate yourself, I will impart all that my Father has given you in your hands. Amen. So let me ask you, saints, what is in your hands? Some of you have been given so much. Some of you didn't even have to work for it. The very things that I'm teaching to you right now, Billy Graham's crusade director gave a pastor who's a friend of mine, and that pastor gave it to me. And so it goes for 2,000 years. What are you passing along in the kingdom? What has been entrusted to you so that you can go entrusted to reliable men, as Paul told Timothy? This begs the question, do you have a responsibility to God? Do you have a responsibility to your fellow man? What are you doing about your responsibility? We say, bless us, Lord. Bless us, Lord. But are you working for it? 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, is your goal to please Him or has it become lip service? Did you realize that it was the most religious people in the world that killed Him? On the most religious holiday in the world. In the most religious city in the world. That's who killed him. Did you realize that most of them could quote the word much better than any of us? Did you realize that most of them came from godly families? At least on the surface. But in the end, he picked 12 outcasts who would be willing to be taught by him and would cherish whatever he told them. 
Are you squandering what God has given you? I pray in the name of Jesus that you wake up. I have 20 years behind me, and I don't know how many years are ahead of me, but I know absolutely for certain that I will waste nothing. The first 18 were an absolute train wreck. But the last 20 have been pretty spectacular. When was your turning point, friend? When did you set your hand to the plow and hear me? Never look back. I found that people generally have a pretty high opinion of themselves. They describe themselves as basically good, basically generous, basically loving, and yet God's Word says that they're monstrous sinners. God's Word says they need to repent. God's Word says there is absolutely no hope other than they know their condition and hunger and thirst for righteousness. Have you noticed that salvation in church has become if anybody, anybody back there would basically like to have help in this life and maybe heaven in the next, raise a pinky while all of us cower in shame and hide our eyes and no one sees you. Have you noticed that? Churches become about what entertainment exists there. We need a McDonald's Playland. We need a Starbucks. Here recently we even need chicken camps. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Have you noticed that the Mormons are more dedicated to being Mormons than most Christians are? I met two boys on bicycles yesterday. They had absolutely no idea what they're talking about. They've not experienced enough of life to have the first clue. My friend, Pastor Bartlett, is standing there and he said, Does it make sense to you that God would keep the entire world in darkness until the 18th century A.D.? when he decided to give us a revelation of Jesus, they had never considered a question like that. They have been taught how to answer Galatians 1.18 and how to point you towards James so that you'll know that there are faith and works. They've been taught to convert Christians to Mormonism. Do you know what the denomination is that is converted faster and more than any other? It's not our Catholic friends. It's Baptist. Why would that be? Maybe we've reduced salvation to a prayer at an altar prayed by someone else. Jesus had a plan to reach the whole world. And it's when a human being knew that they were selected by God. They did whatever they had to do to leave Ur of the Chaldees so that they could associate with Jesus. And in associating with Jesus, they became increasingly aware of one more thing to be obedient to. One more thing each day in their life that would have to change. An ever-narrowing way. And because they were obedient and they were with Him, He was constantly imparting things to them. They could feel that they were growing. They could look back at the previous years and see that they had fruit that they didn't have before. Jesus was faithful to do something. Turn with me to John 13. In John 13, look with me at the 12th verse. Say there when you're there. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his palace. Is there anybody that's run for president in this country in 200 years? They would wash the feet of fishermen. 
They would wash the feet of fishermen. Come on, tell the truth. If there's a camera present, some of them might. I see them kiss babies every day. Jesus did this without a camera. Jesus did this without secondary gain issues. He did it for a very specific reason. He wanted to set them an example. He wanted them to know that they should do as He had done for them. It's not enough that God imparts special knowledge to you. He imparts something to you and as a demonstration so that you will know what you should be doing. Come on, friends. How many of you are imitating Jesus in your daily life? Anybody washed their foot this year? Well, you're from Eastern Europe. If you're from Russia, they do it every time they take communion. Anything can become a ritual. Do you think that's the sense in which Jesus was doing this? To institute a new ritual? Obviously not. You're not doing it. What would happen with that neighbor who hates you? The one that is mad because 10 years ago you parked on his grass? If the next time you saw him, you walked over and fell at his feet and washed his feet? Well, you think you're weird, right? Depending on which neighbor, he might kick you. He might treat you like the world treated Jesus. You see, friends, we don't act like Jesus, and so the world doesn't treat us like Jesus. They're pretty well okay with us, and we're pretty well okay with them. And this proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that our discipleship is at best lacking. How many of you want to be disciples? See, I want to be a disciple with all of my heart. When we follow his example, he says it like this. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Did Jesus forgive you? Come on, say it out loud. Yes. Did Jesus forgive you? Yes. Come on, say it louder. Did Jesus forgive you? Yes. Are you going to forgive the person who hurt you? Yes. yes. Did you see how less enthusiastic that was? <laughs> we say God loves unconditionally. We say that He set that example in Jesus. We, we use this week in history to prove that that occurred. We say that He came in and triumphal Sunday, Palm Sunday, and the nation turned on Him and He, he unconditionally loved them and He died for their sin. And, and we follow Jesus, but then we love with a few conditions. We love you as long as you act like we think you should act. Friends, love puts the biblical standard up as the model 100% of the time. The Bible defines for you what love is. Do you really think it's loving to watch someone go on in their sand and say nothing? you really think that's loving? Would, would you think that was a good doctor? A good doctor would let somebody be dying of a preventable illness and not say anything. I mean, I don't want to offend you, Brandon, so the fact that you're not breathing, we're not going to let that come up in conversation. <laughs> we'll just let it go, you know? We, we, don't want, we don't want hostilities. Jesus loved us enough to confront sin in our life. To provide the opportunity for us to repent. He loved us enough to set an example of what a righteous life looks like. 
And he tells us to do exactly the same thing. Oh, how are we doing with that? At this point, you're probably feeling a little bit like I felt on my 33rd birthday. I have a friend named Preston Coles, and he's brighter than the average guy. And he writes to me on my 33rd birthday. He says, Eric, it's been years since I've seen you. I love you. I wanted you to have a good birthday and to remind you that by the time Jesus was your age, he had provided salvation for the world. <laughs> the point is not that it's a standard we cannot live up to, friends. The point is it's a standard that we can live up to. He did not set us an example that is so insurmountable that it cannot be done. He set us an example and said, now do as I have just done for you. So how dare we stand and blame God and say we're just sinners. We can't. When He told us to do it, and He provides His Spirit by way of impartation so that we can. The living God selected you. He wants you to associate with Him. He wants you to consecrate to His body on earth. He wants to impart something to you. Christianity is more than just sitting in a seat. He's demonstrated the way in which we interact with each other. He's demonstrated it. He said, this is an example that you should follow. When you begin to do these first five things, something else happens. He said, you will be blessed if you do them. If we do what Jesus told us to do, that is like Him delegating His work to us. What did you do this week that was worthy of Jesus? What did you do this week that was on His task list and He assigned it to you? Uh, I know. We downloaded our favorite single in iTunes. That's what Jesus was doing, right? No. We spent $18.50 on two movie tickets because that's what Jesus was doing. Come on, saints. We love it. We say we love it. We say we're devoted to it. Look in the rearview mirror for just a second. Sometimes it's the best way to look into your life. Has the last month, if it was the only month of your life, has the last month shown what you profess with your mouth? Has Christianity become cheap to you? Has His grace become cheap to you? This week everybody will talk about Jesus raised from the dead. But has He raised you from the dead, really? Amen. Amen. Are you still wearing grave clothes around? This week they'll talk about His bloody crucifixion and how He died for the sins of the world. But does that mean anything to you? Now, today, when he demonstrated, he delegated. In Matthew 4, 19, he says it this way. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. Following Jesus produces something. It produces fishers of men. Oh, Jesus. Pastor Please don't put me in that position. Do you remember when you were a kid in Sunday school, those of you that went? Got little stickers on a wall chart for your attendance. If you went to a really good church, you might have a big smiley face if you brought somebody with you. 
We had a wall chart in here today. How many of you have fished for men this month? How many of you have won a soul in 2013? Do we have to go back to 2012? Well, I can see in some places we have to go back to 2011, don't we? We're still not there for some of them. But we're followers of Christ. How does that work? If he said, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Oh, I know. It was only the apostles who would fish for men. Is that what it is, friend? No. The Great Commission does not apply to us. If following him produces fishers of men, where are the fish? We're going to pray over two and multiply. Is that what we're going to do? You know, we could fish all day and night and catch nothing, even if we were professional fishermen. They did it. If Jesus says, throw the net on that side of the boat, you'll pull in such a harvest that it'll tear the nets. See, if we are selected by Him, and we associate with Him, and we consecrate to Him, we're throwing the net where He tells us, and what He imparts to us is the ability to follow His example and do what He did. He will give you that. The same God who set you an example delegated a task to you. Come follow me and I will make you into something. If you follow me, you will become a fisher of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing nets. Jesus called to them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Yeah. I love the scripture. Jesus went through Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and the people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. What example did he set for them? By the time we move all the way to the fifth verse, I'm sorry, the fifth chapter and the second verse, <laughs> he began to teach his disciples, saying, I want you to get this, because I bounced around as I said. Jesus demonstrated something to them, and then he delegates something to them. I'm going to make you fishers of men, and then he begins to teach them how to do that. You were not saved simply to be a passive observer. You were saved to become something. And the active instruction of the Holy Ghost in your life is supervising that process. This is why course correction is necessary and is a judge of whether or not you're actually following Him. You know, today we boast services that have 20,000 people in them. But were they selected by God? We boast services with 20,000 people in them. But do they associate with the Lord? Oh, how about this one? If your life depended on its saints, how many people in here would you trust to obey God if it was not in their best interest? You look around. You have the right to examine them before you answer the question. Boy, isn't that uncomfortable? that somebody would examine your life to see if your life was on the line, would you obey God? 
What if our fellowship was contingent upon answering that question, yes? What if we refused to fellowship with those who would not die for the gospel? Well, then you would have a church that looked like the book of Acts. Look at Luke 9, 10. I'm sorry, Mark 8, 17. It's closer. Say there when you're there. I know it's the Easter week. We're supposed to hand out lollipops, pat each other on the back. Would it make you feel better if somebody called you a champion? You can hear them on the TV calling the world champions every day and every night. We don't know whether Hindus are saved, but we know that you are a champion. Does that help you somehow? Does that challenge your faith somehow? Does that in some way give you a standard to live up to? Or does it just blanketly say, you've already met the standard. Do nothing and pay a tithe. In this church, I promise that we love you enough to confront you with the standard of God. And you know what he did? He picked 12 people. And he had this kind of relationship with them. And 11 of them rose to meet that standard. And when you write a check that says 2013 at some point this year, you're testifying to their work. The message that they got, Israel is 120 miles long by 80 miles wide. Think about that. It would fit eight times in the state of Vermont. If Israel was a matchbox sitting on a football field, that would be appropriate proportionally when considering the 22 Islamic nations that surround Israel Israel would be the matchbox sitting on the 50-yard line of the football field in ratio and proportion as far as land distribution. The average Jew today produces 22 times in gross domestic product what the average Egyptian does and does it without the presence of oil. And what is Israel world famous for? Well, these 12 boys took the message that they were entrusted seriously. You have copies of it in your lap. What could you do? You know what they couldn't? They couldn't email a message around the world. They couldn't post it on Facebook. They couldn't upload a YouTube video. They actually had to get it shipped and go. It cost them their lives. And they gladly gave them. What is the gospel costing us? I told you to go to Mark 8, 17, huh? Jesus began to teach as he delegated, friends. And in Mark 8, 17, you see it said like this. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still, do you not see and understand? Think about this. Jesus has already fed people. He's already multiplied food. And now, they've been given the task of bringing natural bread and they forgot it. You've never forgot anything, huh? No, it doesn't happen. Never forgot anything. And Jesus is listening to their discussion. Because when he gives you a task, say starting a church, he listens to what you think about it. He watches you as you have obstacles coming. He listens to your discussion so that he can supervise what he delegated to you. The living God has entrusted you with a task. The Vincents have made very clear that they want to impact the world for Jesus. They're willing to spend their Saturdays. They're willing to spend their Friday nights. The Lambs have made it very clear that they want to impact the world for Jesus. They've written books. They've rented tents. They're doing whatever they... And the Lord is supervising them. 
It would be cruel to delegate a task to someone and not give them instruction if they didn't know how to do it. It would be even more cruel to follow behind them and take it back from them every second that they weren't doing well. The Lord was not like that. His plan was to demonstrate to people, to delegate to people, and then supervise them. Maybe what some of you are hearing today is the voice of the Spirit supervising the work that He gave you. How seriously are you taking it? Is it as serious as your basketball? As serious as your golf? Is it as serious as making money? Do we really think that the Lord of glory is going to require less of us than our employers? I tell you what, you try something tomorrow morning. Go to work, and while you're at work, think of a newspaper and sit at your desk and read it all day. See how your boss does with it. See if he still wants to pay you. See how long he puts up with it. And then, when you're in a conversation with him, maybe a conference call, maybe a conference table, be distracted. Glance off somewhere else. Don't answer him when he asks you questions. Just look at him and say, I didn't expect you to speak back. See how that worked for us. Jesus had a plan to reach the world. You're still part of the world, and the world is still unreached. If two billion Christ Christians were in the world, then we can safely eliminate quite a few categories. What does that say about the other two-thirds of the world's population? If 12 got it this far, how many is it going to take to get it the rest of the way? The goal of the gospel, the absolute central theme is in John 15. Y'all have gotten very quiet. I've preached you under the table. I understand. I'm sorry. Except I'm not. Union, strength, and love. I'm not quiet. I'm just tired. You're just tired. Well, friend, it's time to get your priorities right, isn't it? Oh, I, got my I don't want to sleep in the house of God. You know what I want to do? I want to wake up, wash my hands, purify my heart, and let Christ's light shine upon me. Anybody want Christ's light to shine upon me? Then the Scripture says, Awake from your slumber, O sleeper. The Scripture demands of us a reaction. Demands of us action. Nobody ever sat back, sat on their salvation and accomplished anything for God, waiting for it to happen to them. It has never been that way. In John 15, starting in the 15th verse, I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. That must mean that on the days Jesus taught it, on the days Jesus demonstrated it, they were there. It must mean that when Jesus walked on the water, they weren't taking that month off. It must mean that when Jesus multiplied the bread, they were there. And so everything that the Father had given them, He made known to them. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear much fruit, fruit that will last. Why did Jesus choose you? He chose you to bear fruit. He didn't choose you just to save you. He didn't choose you just because he loves you. He didn't choose you just so that you can enjoy life. 
All of those things are neatly printed in church vision statements, but they are untrue. Jesus chose you because he expects you to bear fruit. When he taught parables on the subject, he expected 30, 60, and 100 fold exponential growth in what he had given you. He compared the kingdom of God to yeast that would work through the whole loaf, even though it started very small. What did he deposit in you? And what does he expect? The kingdom is about reproduction. He reminds these Jewish apostles that they didn't choose him. But we say we decided to follow Jesus, don't we? We just chose Jesus. He reminds them, you did not choose me, I chose you. Is this a word play? What's going on here? Did Harvard call any of you and ask you to come there? Is there somebody here today that Harvard called you at home and said, we would be delighted if you would come to us? No. But many of you did go through a process. You applied to a university. You had to meet entrance requirements. You had to make an application. And you received a letter one day that said that you had been accepted. Right? This is the way that it worked in Israel in the first century. Your very first educational stop was called Bet Sefer. And in Bet Sefer, you had an interesting thing. This was called the house of the book. And from the age of 6 to the age of 10, you had a task. It was not learning 14 points of church doctrine. Do you know what they expected of a 10-year-old in the first century in Israel? Memorization of the first five books of Moses. Complete, total memorization. And you know what? Most did it. And the few that couldn't do it, you know what they did? They learned as much as they could, and then they went to take part in their father's trade. But the ones that could learn it, they moved on to the second house of learning. It was called Bet Talmud. This was ages 10 to 14. This was, you were expected to learn all of the Torah, all of the Nevim, the, the prophets, and all of the Ketuvim, the writings. You were supposed to learn all 39 books of the Older Testament. Does it surprise you that many of them dropped out at this stage? Many could not learn all 39 books verbatim. Could you do it? And if you manage to get through Bet Talmud, you would enter into Bet Midrash. During Bet Midrash, having learned 39 books of the Older Testament by heart, you would apply to a local rabbi. And he had something called a yoke. His yoke was the way that he interpreted the scripture. You already had it memorized. But you didn't know how he carried it out. So when the scripture said you don't work on a Sabbath, one rabbi would say this many steps is work, and another would say this many steps is not work. The way that he carried it out was his yoke, his manner of life. So if Brandon were applying to Les, uh, Rabbi Les here, then Brandon comes and he says, Rabbi Les, I have learned 39 books of the Older Testament. I have them memorized. I've examined your yoke. Will you please accept me? Rabbi Les would ask him questions. And as Rabbi Les asked him a question, if Brandon could respond 
with a question that both answered his question, demonstrated understanding, and furthered the discussion, Rabbi Les might determine something. You have the ability to become like me, Brandon. Come take my yoke apart. This was the educational system of the first century. Students applied to rabbis. The rabbi only accepted students who already had the word memorized and showed the ability to become like that rabbi. What is Jesus telling his disciples? You didn't choose me. You didn't make an application to me. I came and chose you. What would it be like in the first century then if Rabbi Les didn't wait for Brandon to apply? And by the way, where did Jesus find his disciples? Where were they? Where do you know that they were not then? If they're fishing at home with their father, where were they not? They were not in school. And if they were not in school, then possibly they had failed to be able to memorize. Or they had failed to be accepted by another rabbi. So they went and did what Jewish boys did. They learned their father's trick. And who came to them? Jesus. And how does a rabbi choose a student? If you have the ability to become like him. He picked the ones that no one else wanted. The rejects. And he said, if you will let me select you. If you will associate with me. If you will take the time to show devotion and consecration to me, I will impart to you. I will demonstrate in your life. And then I will delegate my work to you. I will supervise you. And in the end, we have reproduced me in you. This is why the writers of the New Testament said, I labor, struggling for you until Christ is formed in you. This week, pastors all over the United States are going to talk about Jesus presenting Himself as a King to the nation. In what way does that affect your life at all? The issue is not that He presented Himself as a King to a nation, at least not to you. It's that He selected you to be like Him. How are we doing? Are you doing the greater things than Jesus did? Are you truly consecrated? Anybody can jump up and just say, I am so excited because the Lord has done immeasurably more than I could have ever asked for or imagined, and I'm bearing fruit. I tell you the truth, I know some of you, and you can jump up and do that. But God's plan to win the entire world was that you start with those who would you let it multiply from there. I don't know how many are in here today. We have 220 seats. Some are empty. But I know that's more than 12. If Jesus could take 12 dropouts working in their father's business and in only three years turn the entire world upside down, who are we to shortcut this system? But it's hard work. Churches don't do it because it takes a lot of time to associate with people. It's hard. Dustin and I have butted heads more than once. Once, we left each other bloody. That was actually Matthew with Dustin. Yeah. yeah. Not a good idea to wrestle with Matthew. It's hard, but you know what? It works.
when the apostles stood before the Sanhedrin, the religious body of their day. You remember what the Sanhedrin said? They took note. These were unlearned, untrained men. But what? They had been with Jesus. Friends, stand to your feet.